Well, good morning. Uh, I thought before we jumped into the, the message this morning that I would just share with you a story about a man I became very familiar with at the hospital. Uh, he was familiar to me because he had been coming back and forth about five times uh, over and over again for the same issue. The issue that he had was a small bowel obstruction, and for those that aren't familiar with it, it's essentially in your small intestines, you have a blockage uh, caused by either scars or a large portion of food, and over time there can be adhesions and it can cause it where nothing can get through, even blood cannot get to it. Potentially, and in the worst case scenario, it could cause uh, even necrosis of your, uh, your intestines. And so, typically we would allow it to, to get better uh, by just resting the bowels, but in this situation, he was in severe abdominal pain, he had severe abdominal pain, nausea, and just generally was uncomfortable. And we tried and tried to help him um, to realize the fact that there is nothing more we can do for him besides surgery. The only option he had left was surgery to fix the, the, the bowel obstruction. But the problem was not that we couldn't fix the problem. The problem that he came back for five times was not because we didn't give him the solution. It's because he refused the help. He refused that surgery was his only option. He didn't like the idea that somehow surgery was the only way this thing could be fixed. And so not only did he just refuse that idea, he also outright cursed out every single person that came into that room trying to help him, trying to give him a solution. They started off with the resident doctor, who's uh, not necessarily the primary one, but he's kind of a little lower. And he came before him and said, hey, you know, I, I understand why you don't want to go through a procedure, I understand that, but at the same time, you really need to consider your health, really need to consider that there is no other option besides this. And after speaking with him for about 10 minutes, he just outright cursed his name and said, you have no idea what you're talking about, I don't know how you were allowed to be a doctor. And he went away with him. Uh, the attending doctor, who is the highest doctor there is, then said, you know what, okay, maybe it's just he doesn't think you're that qualified, maybe because you're new at this, so I'll speak with him. I'm the primary on this case. So he goes up and speaks with him and says, I know, sir, that you've had concerns about this procedure that we're talking about doing. And uh, I, I'm here to kind of clarify some of those concerns you have. And after about 15 minutes of speaking with him, he again cursed out the attending doctors to his name and, uh, and used all sorts of other abusive language to refuse his offer. After the doctors were finished saying all they could say, they said to my manager, you know, who's this very sweet and down-to-earth person, maybe you can try and convince this person. Maybe you're able to speak and reason somehow with this guy that he needs to go forward with this. And my manager, as sweet as she can be, went in that room, and after about 10 minutes, he began cursing her name as well and was not able to convince uh, this guy that he needed surgery. And as a last-ditch effort, they then said, okay, David, well, <laughs> it's your turn to go in there. Uh, it's your turn to see if you can somehow convince this guy that he needs to go forward with it. And so with really no other uh, option than just to beg him, I began pleading with him and saying, you know, sir, I understand you don't want this, but you're going to keep coming back for the same issue. You could even potentially die from this. Uh, this is not going to end well for you if you walk out the door. Uh, please just go forward with this because, you know, there's no further options for you. And after about only five minutes, he then cursed my name out too and said he wanted a different nurse. And uh, I then gave him a different nurse. 
And after the next nurse came by, he then fired him. In total, he fired 10 nurses. He said he didn't want their care. And in the end, he never got his surgery. In the end, he walked out five times against medical advice. And to this day, I have no idea why he even came in the first place if he didn't want help. But that being said, the point I'm trying to bring across is that this sort of thing is not just an isolated event with this man. This sort of thing happens all the time throughout the world and throughout the history of this world. It's not necessarily always related to a medical issue like a small bowel obstruction, but it's related to the idea that people refuse to accept something that they don't want to hear because they don't like the solution or the answer to the problem. And so instead of heeding the advice, instead of listening to counsel, instead of listening to the truth, they would rather reject it altogether and curse those uh, who are given to them to provide for them the solution to their problems. And so today, with that in mind, we're going to be talking about a group of people who refuse to accept a message, a message that was sent to them all throughout the course of history through various different messengers, all presenting the same message. And yet each time they heard the message, they not only just rejected the message, but in turn, the messenger and, and persecuted them, and more often than not, uh, they ultimately killed them. And in case you haven't figured it out already, we're going to be talking this morning about the rejection uh, by the children of Israel. And this morning is kind of a look at their continuous rejection towards God's messengers, as well as ultimately uh, God's own son. And so we'll look at this in Matthew 11, verses 16 through 19. Uh, as you're turning there, I'll just kind of give a quick uh, recap of last week. We were looking at John the Baptist. Uh, Noad was covering that, and he talked about how he had a moment of doubt in prison where he wondered, is Jesus actually the coming one, or is there someone else we should be looking for? And Jesus makes it clear that based on my miracles, based on the things that I've done, I am the Messiah. I am the one who the Old Testament, proph the Old Testament prophesied about. Jesus, uh, then after that, gives a glowing report of who John the Baptist is and his, um, really his approval of John the Baptist and what he's been doing. And if you remember, J Jesus tells, uh, tells them that John the Baptist is the one that was prophesied about in Malachi, who would be the forerunner to make the announcement that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is finally here. And Jesus says that John essentially was the one who prepared the way for his coming. It even says that he came in the same spirit and power as Elijah, which basically means that they were both preaching the same message of repentance. They both had the same ideas they were trying to convey. They were both my messengers. But the, the stark contrast between the two is that Elijah, he was pointing to a savior coming you know, hundreds of years in the future. In the distant future, he was prophesying about someone who would come. And yet John had the unique privilege of being able to physically point and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's an incredible uh, opportunity and privilege that John had. And so now today we pick back up in the section where Jesus continues to reveal really the true heart of the nation of Israel towards his message and towards the messengers of God. And what we'll find over and over again is that the nation of Israel can be categorized as a nation that rejected, or just in general, they're, they're Rejection towards John the Baptist, all the prophets that came before him, and ultimately uh, Jesus Christ himself. And so we'll read beginning in Matthew 11, verses 16 and 19, through 19. But what shall I liken this generation? 
It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Before we look at these verses, I want to use a verse that was previously in this section that kind of gives us better context uh, before we go into these. And it's found in verse 12. We started there, we read there last week. In verse 12 of the same chapter, Matthew 11, it reads, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, this verse may very well refer to the influx of believers uh, of John's day, that with John's ministry, there is very clearly followers who came to know the Lord. They came to trust Christ as their Savior. Uh, And so it may have been very well an encouragement to John about his ministry uh, and people coming to know the Lord. However, if you look at the rest of the book of Matthew, and if you look at the rest of the Gospels for that matter, it's very clear that the vast majority of people during Jesus' day, by and large, they rejected the message that the Lord had come to bring through John. And as a result, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence by the hands of men and women who rejected Jesus Christ as their king. They essentially said in their hearts and in, with their words that we're not going to turn our lives over to this man. We will not have this man reign over us. We're not going to repent of our sins. And by and large, the vast majority of people refused to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord. They, accept, they refused to uh, accept his offer of salvation. And we see this to be true time and time again throughout the Bible. It's the fact that men love their sin more than they love God. And in some ways, it, it makes sense. You know, sin is pleasurable. Sin is desirable. Sin fits with the worldly mind and what it wants. Sin is comfortable. And so naturally, men in their sinful state gravitate towards it. They think that, you know, whatever I do in the darkness can't be found out because this is a secret sin. This is something no one knows. It's just between me and myself and I. And when uh, the man has no concern for being found out, when they have no accountability, they enjoy being in the darkness. But according to John 3, we know that God sees all all that mankind does. And his condemnation to the world... It says in John 3 that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so when a person is exposed, when someone comes into this world and starts exposing them for their sin, for their unrighteous deeds, when it becomes out in the open, men begin to want to get rid of that person. They want to eradicate whoever is revealing their sin, whoever is exposing them for who they truly are. And so they begin by trying to get rid of that person and, uh, and stop them from exposing them. And so they began to violently abuse them to quiet them down. If you think back to the prophets, they were martyred for their faith. You think of those who were burned. Uh, think of those who were stoned. You can think of even, uh, even John the Baptist himself. It's not clear now, but later we find out that he's beheaded for his faith. Uh, Noah had alluded this last week that you know Herod had a relationship with a woman who was not his wife. Uh, John the Baptist clearly points it out. And later he makes a a rash promise to the daughter of this woman 
and says she can have anything she wants, and the wife, or the, the mother of this daughter, then tells her to ask for the, the head of John the Baptist, and no doubt it's probably in relation to uh, him exposing them for their sin, and so in retaliation, she essentially asks for that, and John ultimately is beheaded, but it's because he's beheaded because of his faithful witness of God's message of calling people to repentance, calling them to turn from their sin and follow him. And so, the kingdom of heaven is violently persecuted by men who don't want their deeds exposed. In fact, later in Matthew, Jesus even gives a parable to illustrate the horrific rejection of the children of Israel. And it's really a rejection that's not only towards God's messengers, but ultimately, it's even towards his own son. This parable he gives them is found in Matthew 21, verses 33 through 39. And I'll read it. It says, Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers who went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dresser that they might receive its fruits. And the vine dresser took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And again, he sent another servant, more than the first, and they did likewise also. Then the last of all, he sent his own son, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dresser saw, they had said, when the vine dresser saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. In this parable, there's a couple characters we should just uh, make note of before we kind of begin explaining it. The character, God is clearly the landowner. Israel is the vineyard. The vine dressers are the chief priests and the scribes. And time and time again, God sent his prophets into the land of Israel, to the nation of Israel. God was looking for fruit. God was looking for repentant hearts. He was looking for souls that would turn from their sin. And God, he loved them so dearly. And that's why he sent these people to them. And yet, instead of repenting of their sins, the nation of Israel hardened their hearts towards the message of God And not just rejected it, but they viciously persecuted all the prophets and they violently murdered a portion of them. And so God sends one round of prophets. And then he says, okay, well, they didn't listen to that. I'll send more prophets. And hopefully even then they'll choose to believe what I'm trying to sell them. And again, they do likewise them. And last of all, he says, okay, well, if they're not going to believe my prophets, then God says, if I send my own son to this world, surely they'll believe my own son. And yet when they realize that this is the heir, when they realize this is the son, they say, let's seize his inheritance. Let's murder him by nailing him to the cross, believing that somehow they could seize this inheritance. No matter how much this message was preached over and over again, they continually rejected and didn't want any part of it. The violent, uh, it says the violent occurred because they didn't want to come to the kingdom of heaven on their own terms. They saw it as a threat of the a threat to the way they were living their lives. You see, they wanted a a kingdom of heaven on their own making. They wanted to come to heaven on their own merit, on their own man-made way. And to this day, God, uh, when he brings up the plan of salvation, when we speak to this world about how they can know they're going to heaven or how they can come to a saving knowledge of Christ, today, even in this world now, you continually have people Uh, showing hostility toward you. They persecute you or they'll call you names or they'll 
even in some countries, violently persecute you, still like they used to do in Israel. And John the Baptist, he is just the latest messenger that God has sent his people. And though some people came to know the Lord personally and some believed on him, for the most part, the message was not well received. And those who will not hear of John's message that points to Christ, they're not so much as rejecting John or John's message as they are, as they are rejecting Christ himself. And therefore, they're rejecting Christ as their king over them. And Jesus was trying to get people to realize that it's not about which prophet I send or who I send. It's about, ultimately, these prophets all had the same goal in mind. They were all pointing towards me. They all had the same purpose they were trying to accomplish. Well, today, Jesus continues on in our passage in looking at the response of Israel towards not only just John's message, but his message as well. And honestly, it's a very sad sight to read. So we'll look at just verses 16 and 17 for now. It says, But what shall I like in this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. As I thought back to the, the man who left the hospital about five times, every time against medical advice, he just was a person that couldn't be reasoned with. And though we sent knowledgeable experts on his case, uh, he did not heed the advice. And the problem was is that he's alert and oriented, and he's fully with it, and he can understand and rationally think through these things. And so we can't proceed with something if he's not allowing us to. And even though we, we tried, actually, it was interesting, because I called the doctor, and I asked him what he wanted me to do and, and how I can go about, and it seemed like everyone who went in that room had a different tone that they approached the situation with. And so the first doctor came with a more... Um, more firm tone and more stern. And he was saying, you know, this is what you need. I have no other options left to tell you. This is it. Either get the surgery done or leave. And that was kind of his approach to it um, because he was being so irrational. And obviously he was rejected. And the next person that came in, they thought, you know, I'll be a little bit more, uh, they were more on the sweet side. So they're able to be more compassionate and said, you know, I, I know it's really, it's a big consideration as to, you know, what you're doing. And anytime you go under surgery, it's always a risk, but I, I do want to just tell you that I think this is the best thing for you. And, and, and after that, again, rejected. But, and then the next person came in begging, saying, please, I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. Please just listen to me. Listen to the, what we're trying to tell you. And it's interesting how no matter what tone you came to them with, he ultimately rejected it. The result was the same. No matter who it was, doctors, managers, nurse managers, nurses, the result was the same. He rejected it and ultimately went home without ever getting the surgery. And his behavior of being verbally abusive towards the staff was unacceptable towards us, but it was also like a little child who's temperamental. You know, you have children, uh, I don't know if you've ever dealt with this as a parent, I've never, but I can imagine that these situations play out quite often. You know, you ask them, uh, you know, how about today we go down to the park and we go and play catch? I don't wanna do that, I hate playing catch. And then he said, oh, okay, uh, well, how about maybe we'll stay indoors and we'll have arts and crafts and maybe we could do some art together. I don't want to do that either. And you say, oh, okay, uh, well, you like going to the beach. How about we go get our swim trunks on and we'll go hop down to the beach and say, I hate the water. And you say, well, oh, my goodness, you're being very picky today. Um, and you say, and in the last ditch ever, well, okay, you love baking. I know you like baking. How about we make cookies together and then we'll, you know, 
We'll have, you know, have them to snack on after we're done. They say, I, I hate all these things. Why don't I just stay home? And, uh, and you just sigh to yourself and throw your hands up in the air and say, you know, how can I even get through to this one? They're so temperamental. They will not be pleased no matter what I do. And Jesus is trying to show that the nation of Israel is the same way. No matter who the Lord sent to them, whether it was a prophet who came playing the flute and being an encouragement like Isaiah was at times when he sent uh, sometimes more joyful messages, or if it was like a lamenting prophet who came weeping like Jeremiah, they would not accept the message either way. No matter what the messenger said, they refused the message that was given to them. Whether it be a soft voice appealing to them or a weeping prophet lamenting for their sins, ultimately, the nation of Israel rejected it. They were like children in the marketplace where one prophet would say, okay, let's play happy. And they despised that prophet. And then the next prophet said, okay, let's play sad. And no matter what they said, they rejected it. They simply would not accept the message or the messenger despite God sending it in so many different ways and so many different tones. And to give them an even more updated and more uh, practical example, he then goes on in verse 18 and 19 to elaborate what he means by that. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. And what he means by that is that John came as someone who lamented. He came as someone who mourned. He was a man who practiced uh, significant self-discipline. He was a guy who refused to eat the normal foods, and instead he ate things like wild honey, locusts. And instead of the normal living in society, he devoted himself to fasting and praying, refusing to enjoy some of the most basic life pleasures. And instead of uh, spending his time joyfully, he spent his time lamenting and pleading with people to repent of their sins. But because he didn't eat and drink like the majority of Israel did, because he didn't behave in the most normal manner, they then said the only logical conclusion to the way this man is acting is that this man must have a demon in him. That's the only conclusion we can come to. And so that was their conclusion of John. And so Jesus, on the other hand, came with a different personality, if you will, than John the Baptist. He came and he he ate and he drank in a normal manner. And you would think that if John the Baptist made them uncomfortable, if his eating habits were abnormal to them, then maybe they'd be more willing and more accepting of Jesus with his more regular eating habits. But we know that wasn't the case either. Instead, they then call him a glutton and a drunkard. And we know clearly that Jesus never sinned. We know that he never drank or ate in excess. And so this claim is false, but it just proves the point that no matter who God sent their way, they would find some fault with him. This generation could not be pleased by anything. They didn't like John's praying and fasting. But then, and later in Mark 2, they then asked Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so no matter which way you have it, they couldn't be pleased. Whether you fast or you don't fast, they weren't going to like it. They were going to find something about it they didn't, uh, didn't find uh, accepting to them. And they even go as far to call Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this accusation was really meant to condemn the Lord, which essentially was saying that you're associating, uh, that by associating with tax collectors and sinners, you're therefore sharing and approving of their sins, which we know clearly Jesus did not approve and share of the sins of, of tax collectors and sinners. 
Though it's not really the meaning that the Pharisees and the religious leaders meant when they said it, these words are remarkably true, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus saw the world lost in their sins. He saw the world helpless, wandering around aimlessly, without any direction or hope for the future. He saw us while we were still enemies against him, and he decided to show us kindness. Sinners, he decided to show sinners kindness and mercy by dying for us. He laid down his life to save us from our sins and now offers us a relationship with him. And in this relationship, he offers us forgiveness of sins, eternal life, friendship. He's our counselor throughout life. He makes intercession for us when we pray. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He provides for us daily. He cares for our every needs. Jesus is truly a friend of sinners like you and I. And I'm so thankful that the words that were originally intended to mock Jesus all actually reign true that he is indeed a friend of sinners like you and I. He then says, but wisdom is justified by her children. In 1 Corinthians 1.30 it says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We realize that from this verse, that Jesus is the personification of wisdom in Matthew. And that, what does it mean, therefore, then, when it says uh, wisdom is justified by her children? It really means that though the world might mock Jesus, though they might drag his name through the mud, he is vindicated by not only his actions, but the changed lives of his followers. The crowd might refuse to accept Jesus as their king, but they couldn't deny his miracles, and they could not dispute the fact that there was a supernatural occurrence that had taken place in the lives of his followers. It's undeniable that there was a changed person. And so wisdom is justified by her children. Now there's at least three takeaways that I've come up with as I was looking at through this passage. And the first being that the vast majority of people that we come into contact with will, by and large, reject the gospel message. And so if you've ever felt discouraged as you witness or as you try and reach out to coworkers or family members or friends even, and you face rejection and you've been discouraged by that, just remember that you are not alone in your rejection. John 15 tells us that as servants of Christ, we, should, we shouldn't expect any different treatment from the world than Jesus Christ himself uh, endured. It says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Noah had mentioned last week that our role uh, is not to save people. In fact, we can't save anyone. We've come um, to this world and... You know, we can witness to them, but only God can save people from their sins. Our role is to be a vessel to carry that good news throughout the world. We present that good news to them, and then they have to make a choice. If they refuse to believe it, that's their choice, and that's a decision that they will eternally suffer the consequences for. But when people reject us as we witness, it's not so much that they're rejecting me or my message as much as they're rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord over their lives. And so look, the prophets who preached, they were persecuted. They were killed because of it. And yet God used them to the few that would actually believe the words that they said. God sent John the Baptist 
And he had, whoever had an ear to hear and that was willing, came to know the Lord through his ministry. And in the end, though, John was beheaded. He was persecuted for what he said. Jesus came into this world offering eternal life, and as a result, they crucified him. And, those, and as those who come after Christ, as, as people who are uh, down the road after Christ, still preaching that message, we should not also be surprised when we are rejected, persecuted, and hated by this world. Rejection is something that comes with the territory of being a Christian. But to us, it should be an encouragement that we're in good company with others who went before us, who endured the same things. And so really, it should be an encouragement to us to continue witnessing, to continue preaching that good news. The second thing that I took away from this was that when we witness to the world, we need to be doing it out of love. The Lord loved the people, the very people who rejected him. If you want to look at the heart of God, you can look no farther than Matthew 23. And just shows the yearning in his heart for the children of Israel to turn to him. His heart longs for them to turn from their sin, but they were unwilling to. Uh, and it's just, you can just read these verses, or this verse and just read the sorrow in the heart of God as he sees his people's heart is so hardened. It says in uh, Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And Jesus, as he's probably standing on the Mount of Olives, looks over this whole city, Jerusalem, and sees it and says, Oh, if you were just willing, I would have gathered you. And it's just this disheartening uh, sight in the Lord's eyes. You can only imagine the emotions and, and what his heart felt as he was saying those words. The Lord loved Israel. He had sent so many messengers to her, and she didn't listen. She would stone one, kill another. And the Lord desired to lovingly gather his children to himself, just as a mother hen would gather her chicks under her wings to protect them from harm. But Israel would not willingly accept his offer. Later we read in Romans 10, 21, it says that all day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. It's like the Lord has his arms out wide, stretched out, saying, if you're just willing to accept this offer, my arms are wide open. And we know that later that they used those same outstretched arms and nailed him to a cross to be crucified. They not only murdered the prophets and the messengers, but they murdered their very own Savior. And you can just see the heart of God groaning for his people to return to him, groaning for their eyes to be open and to realize their need for a Savior. His heart was heavy because they were like sheep who are lost and helpless, without a shepherd. And so when we share the gospel throughout the world, we should remember and have a heart that's similar to the heart of Christ and do it out of a motivation for love for them. The final takeaway that I saw through this was that if you haven't accepted the gospel yet, the Lord is pleading with you to accept it. Today's passage, while it's primarily been speaking about Israel and their rejection of messengers, um, the gospel today is for both Jew and Gentile, which includes everyone. This message is for all people. God sent his messengers to this world, mostly who were rejected, whether it would be today's world through evangelists or preachers or family or friends 
or coworkers, or whether it be verses on billboards or transits or a gospel track, whether it be movies or videos or whatever it may be to broadcast the good news. And by and large, today's society, today's world, has rejected the good news. But God is still at work trying to get the attention of the world to turn from their sins and to accept his son as their savior. And yet today, they're just like the children of Israel. Regardless if the the gospel is presented in a moving and convicting manner, whether or not it's spoken with love and sincerity, by and large, most will scoff and ridicule it. No matter which way the gospel is presented, the world will not accept it. And so Jesus is asking one more time today, arms wide open, waiting for you, will you make me Lord of your life? Will you let go of your sin? Will you let go of the pleasures of sin? Will you let go of anything in this world that's holding you back? You know, we talked about uh, the woman at the well this morning and, and asking for a drink. And, you know, there is no satisfaction to be found in this world. The Lord Jesus is asking and is providing, giving the opportunity to take of that living water, the water which will quench your thirst, the water that always will satisfy, not like this world where you can take a drink from it, but again, you're going to be thirsty the next day. He's asking you, will you make me Lord and King over your life? And I just want you to know that he loves you. And he not only just says, I love you, but he demonstrated it by coming to this earth and dying on the cross of Calvary where he physically bled and died, taking upon the wrath of God on himself for your sins and for my sins. He loves you dearly, and he wants that relationship with you. He wants you to know him and to grow in a relationship with him him day by day. But it's your choice. Will you be like the Pharisees and the religious leaders and reject his offer and say, we will not have this man reign over us? Or... Will you commit your life to him and make him king and lord over your life? Whether you do it in this life or not, Philippians 2 tells us that at one day, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you don't know the Lord, it's my prayer this morning that you would voluntarily bow the knee to Christ in this life and take of that living water, that free gift of salvation that he offers, leading to eternal life. Let's just pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just look at this passage, and Lord, we're just amazed at the continual uh, love you had for the nation of Israel, and how you pursued them for generations, Lord, and continually are pursuing them, and pleading with them to trust you, Lord. And I, I pray that, Lord, you would just... Help us as we witness to this world to have the same love that you have toward them. I pray, Lord, that we look at this world lost in their sin and would have a, a, long, a longing and a yearning to tell them the good news of how they can know you and how they can have a personal relationship with you. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you or if there's anyone watching that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would come to know you today, Lord. I pray that they would take of that living water and experience what it's like to be truly satisfied, Lord, with what you have to offer. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.